Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Latin America has become a hub for innovation and entrepreneurship. Last year alone, more than 200 startups were founded, and according to the Global Startup Ecosystem Index, many countries in the region have surpassed other more established innovation markets around the world. To speak with me about the factors that contributed to the emergence of this entrepreneurial ecosystem and what barriers are still hindering its future potential, that it is my pleasure to welcome Martin Escobari, Head of Global Growth Equity, Co-President, Managing Director, Head of Latin America, and Chairman of General Atlantic's Investment Committee, as well as Luis Cervantes, Managing Director and Head of GA's Mexico City Office. Martin, Luis, welcome to Mexico Matters. I mean, I'm truly, truly so excited to be with you today. Both of your personal and your professional stories are not only testament of what is possible in Latin America, but you also give us a window into a very positive trend that is occurring in the region and has attracted billions of dollars in investments, but has yet to catch the eye of politicians, the media, some think tank people, among others. Martin, your story, I mean, it's really fascinating. You were the first kid from Bolivia to ever go into Harvard. You're now co-president of General Atlantic and also a role model to thousands of kids from around the world who want to have a bigger life. Please tell us your story. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you for those kind words. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the great work you do for Mexico and Mexico matters. I was born in a little, little town in Bolivia called Camiri, which is an oil town. And my luck would have it. They had a good American school, so I learned English from a relatively early age. And I was able to get a scholarship to go to Harvard. And I didn't even know what Harvard was at the time, other than they gave me a scholarship. And being the first Bolivian was a source of pride. And I spent eight years in the U.S. and then decided to go back to Latin America. And I got a job in Brazil working with the 3G guys who were at the time had set up a very successful private equity shop, the largest private equity shop in the emerging markets. And I was mesmerized by the opportunity of Latin America. I always thought we had incredible potential as a region, but we had failed to live up to our potential. So I moved to Brazil, fell in love with Brazil, fell in love with a Brazilian woman, had Brazilian family. And this was 1998, and it was the beginning of the dot-com bubble. And very quickly came to the conclusion that this was a once-in-a-generation technological disruption and an enormous opportunity to modernize Latin America, an enormous opportunity to create businesses of real scale. So I was co-founder of the number one e-commerce company in Brazil called Submarino.com, and it was quick to launch and expand both in numbers of categories and services and financial services, and also go international. And I was head of international. And it was a seven-year journey as an entrepreneur. We almost died twice, and one very close to the wire. But at the end, we turned a profit. We were the first Brazilian technology company to ever go public in Bovespa, in the Brazilian Stock Exchange. And then we were eventually sold to a large retailer in Brazil. That was 2005. 
And I decided to become an investor. So I've been an investor since 2005, briefly at Advent, and now for the last 13 years at GA. And at GA, we bet on entrepreneurs globally. And it's been an amazing honor, together with Luis and our partners in Brazil, to support some of the most exciting entrepreneurial stories of a generation in Latin America over the last 10 plus years. And that's my story. Well, it is incredible. It is truly a remarkable story. Luis, you were probably not the first Mexican to go into Harvard, but I would bet that you were one of the youngest. I don't know. You must have been in your 20s or 30s when you were made head of Mexico for General Atlantic. To what do you attribute your success? Thank you, Mariana, and thank you for having us. I've been very lucky to have amazing mentors. It started with my mom and dad who showed me the value of hard work and they pushed me to start working at a very young age. So I was 21 and a sophomore in college when I started working in investment banking. Then at Advent, I had an amazing boss, Antonio Moya, who empowered me to drive the value creation agenda at the age of 25 in a lot of our companies, including leading the IPO of one of our large regional companies uh, in Brazil. And then with Martin, when I was 28, and he really trusted me and empowered me to develop our Mexico presence. That was not an obvious decision for GA at the time. Data was not really on our side. At that point, most of the global investors that had tried to make money in Mexico had failed. Entrepreneurship was not really flourishing in the country. But I think Martin, Bill, and others understood the market opportunity. They believed we could make things differently in Mexico. And they trusted and empowered me together with a great team to develop our platform in Mexico which today has become a platform of nine companies and it represents 5% of our global portfolio. And we're very happy with the development we've seen of entrepreneurs in the country. So I have to tell a story. So we hired Luis as a summer intern in the middle of business school. And his <laughs> summer project was to prove that Mexico is investable. And he spent two months preparing a, a big data set and preparing a week of meetings for Bill and I to go to Mexico and discover Mexico and see if it's ready for growth, investing in capital. And the trip could not have been worse. <laughs> There's one dinner where we sit down with an incredibly experienced executive from Monterrey who spent the entire weekend convincing us how coming to Mexico is the worst possible decision a private equity shop could ever make. <laughs> and Luis was like silent. silent. <laughs> a, a true visionary. This man was a true visionary. And I'm happy to report, what is it, eight years later that private equity is alive and well, GA is doing fine, and Luis still has a job as head of Mexico for GA. <laughs> but it's true. Mexican businessmen can be sometimes the most pessimistic about Mexico. Martin, set the stage for us. How do you see the world today? I mean, macroeconomic conditions are tough. That is, we have much higher interest rates, higher inflation, and much more complicated geopolitical environments. How are all of these factors impacting your decisions as an investor? If you take a step back, we could not choose a better time to be alive. Go back 4,000 years and you say, choose the 30 years where I'm going to be alive and productive and try to build something. There has been no better time in history than the present in terms of the conditions that allow for entrepreneurship in terms of the abundance of resources, the rate of innovation, the infrastructure that's been built, the relative wealth of the population. So 
I start from a position of optimism about our future and how lucky we are as humans to live in the current environment. Now, having said that, from a macroeconomics perspective, for the last 20 years, we benefited from low and declining rates. The next 10 years are very high rates that are not going to decline. So making money in a high-rate environment as an equity investor is twice as hard. Similarly, there's a lot of political dysfunctionality in a world that's more polarized. The left and the right are not talking to each other. Technology has not helped bring a common narrative for humanity and for countries. And there's a lot of political dysfunctionality. And there's also war in the world. There's two hot wars going on right now in the world. So it's a tricky time in which to be investing. But what gives me confidence that returns will continue to be attractive is we as a world already have the digital infrastructure in place for a digital world. 65% of the world is online. In Latin America, it's 70. Close to 60% of the world is accepting digital payments. So there's, you know, entry into the digital world, transact in the digital world. And, you know, more than half the companies are on the cloud. This provides the piping on which great new companies can create value and destroy old industry structures and create the new. So I'm optimistic about the rate of innovation and the rate at which new companies will be created, largely because of this infrastructure that's been built over the last 20 years. Luis, funding into Latin America decreased by about 40% this year versus last year. How are unicorns and startups adapting into this new world of not free money? It's back to basics. It's back to a relentless focus on the value proposition to consumers. It's back to a focus on unit economics, a focus on profitable growth, and a focus on having fully funded business plans. There is a silver lining of the correction, which is that irrational competition is gone. Long gone are the days in which companies were selling their products at negative gross margins or tripling the salaries of talent from competitors in order to poach them. So this means that if companies, the companies that are executing based on their fundamentals are winning market share, and because of this, we believe they will be able to continue to raise capital in the private markets and eventually in the public markets as well. Martin, you mentioned that you bet on entrepreneurs globally. From your perspective, how do you compare the Latin American entrepreneur and opportunity from other regions of the world? So first, let's talk about the opportunity set, and then let's talk about the human capital going after that opportunity set. So our opportunity set is challenged by Costa America Latina. All things we know don't yet work as well as they should work. Regulation is tougher, inflation is higher, macroeconomic policy is less sophisticated, foreign direct investment is fickle, we're depending on you know, foreign investors for a lot of capital. There's like a list of 30 issues that make being an entrepreneur in Latin America harder. But there's one fabulous advantage. Our problems are bigger. And if you create a digital solution to a big problem, you create a lot of value and you can capture a lot of value. So renting an apartment is hard in New York. In Brazil, it's impossible because there's fake listings and there's no credit bureau, so no one gives you credit if you're going to rent, and the brokers are unprofessional. If you're keen to Andar and you can create a seamless digital process, you create a lot of value. And sure enough, Quinto Andar is incredibly valuable. Buying a used car, that's hard everywhere in the world. Buying a used car in Mexico used to be impossible. 
Sometimes you thought you were buying a car. It wasn't even a car what you were buying. Tavak addressed, and you met Carlos at the beautiful event that you organized at CSIS. And Carlos has turned around the process by which you buy a used car. And you can get financing on it, and it can get a guarantee, and the buying process is pleasant. Sure enough, the market share of a Kavak in Mexico is much greater than the market share of a Carvana anywhere else in the world. And the margins that they can charge are greater. So that what makes life harder also makes the opportunity better if you're tackling one of the big problems that affect our societies. And you can do that with a digital mousetrap. And there's lots of examples in our portfolio and outside our portfolio of companies that have done this. The quality of the entrepreneur, human capital and genius is distributed evenly in the world. We have the same proportion of magically gifted individuals <laughs> than anywhere else in the world. You guys are an example. So are you. It's the environment that promotes or demotes certain attributes and creates certain traits. The best phrases on describing the differences of the two types of entrepreneurs was a very successful investor that moved from Brazil to the U.S. before I did. Six years ago when I got promoted, he's one of the spinoffs from 3Gs, built amazing businesses. And he had been in the States for almost a decade. And I asked him, how do I adjust? What does it take for someone who built their operating systems and their approaches to life in Latin America to also do well in the United States? And he said to me, his name is Alex Bering. He's you know, at 3G. He said, listen, in the United States, it's fantastic. The highways have six lanes each way, and you can go 180 miles an hour without fear of being surprised. And it's been spectacular. And he says, and in Latin America, we're used to driving in these dirt roads full of potholes and the bridges sometimes break and then there's flooding and you got to adjust the route and then uh, landslides. So we are a lot more resourceful. And when we get into the highway, we're ready for it. You fly. You fly. <laughs> so I think we're much more used to adversity much more resourceful as human beings and much more resilient as entrepreneurs. And in entrepreneurship, which is an activity with 90% failure rate, being resilient and being resourceful are very important. Now, that also creates a handicap because even the best dirt road drivers, when they get to the highway, they're afraid to step on the gas. One of the things Luisa and I do in our roles as investors with our Latin American entrepreneurs is giving them the confidence that they can go a little faster. It's okay. You've got a good partner by your side. And yes, there are some potholes. You can go a little faster. That's a really cool analogy. Luis, what percentage of, of your portfolio is in Latin America? And how has it performed versus other regions in your portfolio? So we've been in the ground in Latin America for 15 years, first in Brazil and then in Mexico. We invested more than $5 billion in 36 companies in the region. Today, Latin America represents over 10% of our global portfolio. Why is that? Because of the what Martin mentioned. Our entrepreneurs in the region are solving huge problems. And once they solve huge problems, they are capturing a lot of value. And you're helping them step on the gas. Exactly. Martin, you spoke about Submarino. I mean, that was back in the 90s, right? Why did Brazil... <laughs> don't, don't age me. Don't age me so much, my please. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something, Martin. Why did Brazil develop to become an early e-commerce adapter? 
back in those days? And what did they do right that other countries, for example, Mexico, didn't do? I think the big difference with Mexico and Brazil as it regards to the early stage development of the ecosystem was the speech with which the telecom sector deregulated and allowed for cheap, widely available internet access, followed by the speed by which digital payments penetrated, which will give people the comfort to transact online. We opened Submarino. Juan Saldivar was our country manager for uh, Submarino. And I know Juan, yes. I know you know Juan. He's a great <laughs> friend and a wonderful human being. He is. And we saw him struggle with the fact that internet access wasn't as pervasive. Fewer people had credit cards. People were more reluctant to give it online. The logistics infrastructure was also less robust. So it took a while, probably a five to 10 year delay for that ecosystem to be ready for e-commerce to take off. That ecosystem today looks a lot more healthy. And sure enough, it's growing very nicely and you have you know, large e-tailers and you actually yeah. have access to the US e-tailers through NAFTA. So, so I think there's been a lot of catching up to do, but at the time there was a five to seven year lag that allowed Brazil to develop a little faster than Mexico. Luis, if you were to pick one or two regulations that need to change in Mexico that are hindering this potential, where would you focus on? I think there are three key components, talent, access to IPOs, and antitrust regulation. On talent, I love what's happening in Mexico City. If you go to Condesa and Roma, the predominant language is English. There's a lot of global talent moving into Mexico. Many of our companies are tapping this talent and they are also creating regional hubs for talent to serve the Mexican market. But we need to continue to streamline our immigration laws in order to make sure that Mexico is at the top of the list for global talent. Secondly, we need a well-functioning IPO market. There have been more than 40 tech IPOs in Brazil, there have been zero in Mexico, and that needs to change. The good news is that when we look at the private companies where we invested in Mexico, we believe they would be ready to become great public stories, but we need to make sure the investor set is ready. We love Farafores, which are the main providers of capital to the Mexico ecosystem are doing in terms of investing in funds and also investing directly in private companies. And we believe they will be ready to invest whenever the companies go public. We also love how the retail market has developed. The number of retail brokerage accounts has grown more than 10x over the last five years. There's regulation that's promoting and encouraging companies to list, including tax incentives that provide a lower capital gain tax for entrepreneurs that list their shares. But we need the first success stories. Success will breed success, and we need in the next two to three years to have successful Mexican IPOs. And the third one is antitrust regulation. Mexico remains a very concentrated economy. If you look at the financial sector, five banks hold 70% of assets. They also own the payments networks. As entrepreneurs grow, they are subject to attacks from the informal sector and the incumbents. And we need to make sure that we celebrate and protect these entrepreneurs in order for them to flourish. Luis, let me just follow up. You said there's not one Mexico-based fintech that has been able to IPO and that big banks are still as dominant, as profitable as ever or more so. 
there was a lot of anticipation about the new fintech law. And then I read some disappointment. What is your take on that? I think the fintech law has worked. Okay. But the law is not enough in order for the fintech ecosystem to thrive. The fintech law established a sandbox that has been used by many fintech companies in order to establish their business models. And that's why we see a lot of IFPES and other figures in the market. Now we need these fintech companies to really grow and develop. And I think that goes back to the access to capital, to talent, and to competition laws that are fair and that allow these players that have been created to grow and flourish in a similar way as it has happened in Brazil and India and in other places. That's exactly what I wanted to ask Martin. Martin, compared to Brazil or India, Mexico has been largely left behind, right? Still, cash transactions in Mexico account for about 85% of all transactions. What has Brazil done and India that made them succeed in the digital payment system? More competition in the banking sector. So credit card penetration in Brazil is 72% and Mexico is 22%. Credit cards are not popular yet in Mexico. And the incumbent banks are slow in making it popular and not in a rush. We need the Clars and the new banks of the world to bring some competition into that segment and make credit cards accessible, popular, and usable. That's one difference. Second difference, the instant payment technology that was deployed in all three countries very successful. The UPI in India, which was the early adopter, very successful. PIX in Brazil, incredibly successful. The Mexican version is slow, not really embraced by the banks, didn't really take off. So another sign of lack of competition and innovation, hindering the adoption of a new technology. The third one has to do with the size of the informal sector, and that's broader than just fintech. The percent of the population in Mexico that works in the informal sector is like 57%. More than half of people are outside the system. They want the cash transactions because they can't really have a bank account and a credit card because their money is all informal. Brazil did huge inroads, and so is now India, in trying to formalize the economy and taking cash out of the system. With formality, yes, you pay a little more tax, but you have a credit history. With a credit history, you have working capital finance lines that allow you to grow a little faster and build a company that has three, four, five employees, not just you and your child or you and your wife or you and your husband. It's those three things that I think stood in the way. I think progress is happening, probably could happen a little faster. Martin, you must receive thousands of deals or opportunities to look at every year, but you can only, you know, invest in a very selected few. As someone who has been on both sides of the equation, I mean, you're an investor, you have been an entrepreneur. What do you look for when you see a new company or when you see the entrepreneur behind it? We meet about 7,000 new companies per year. We track about 100,000 companies. We invest in 30. So we say no 399 times for every yes. So that's heartbreaking, but that's what it takes to do what we do. Over the years, through pattern recognition, doing what we do across so many geographies and so many sectors, we came up with a checklist that codifies things that are correlated with success and things that are correlated with lack of lack of success. I'll tell you what we don't like. We don't like super competitive industries with undifferentiated product. 
We don't like capital intensive industries where you have to build something and then fill it. We don't like companies that are operating in a heavily regulated influx environment. And we don't like to be in situations where the entrepreneur doesn't need any help from us. So those are the things we don't do. And that's really helpful. The things we do do have a couple of things in common. It's entrepreneurs going after large markets. The size of your dream is limited by the market you're going after. So people who are taking on big markets. Business models that create economic value, they have gross profit. They're able to sell on their services at a multiple of what it costs them to provide that service. And that that margin is defensible because once you've built that model, it's hard for a second, third or fourth player to undercut you because of something you did around the way you do it that makes your margin uh, defensible. And the third most hardest to assess is the quality of the team. And what we've learned over the years is first around entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs are purpose-driven. They have a track record of success, meaning they've built things, they've done things, they've overcome adversity, and they have a chip on their shoulder. For some reason, they're out to prove something. And if you have those three things, you're crazy enough to start a company. But then you have to assess the team. And that's a more complicated because a team like in any sport, not everyone is an attacker. You need a midfielder, you need a defense, you need a goalie. And the way we assess teams is through a process of management assessment, which is we start with the dream and say, this is what needs to happen in the next 10 years. For this mission, which is to accomplish this dream, do you have the right people in the right seats to go after this opportunity? And often the people that got you to this point are not necessarily the people that can scale to the next one, nor should they try. It's not fitting to their capabilities, ambitions, or what they want. So a lot of our assessment is understanding what are the strengths and the holes in the team, and can we help that entrepreneur fill the holes? And lo and behold, we got just like we track 100,000 companies, we track about 10,000 executives globally, who are people that we've gotten to know over the decades. And are excellent and we see them develop and we try to hire from them. That's a way in which we augment the teams of the companies we invest in. Luis, so far we have spoken a bit about fintech and e-commerce, but I assume there are many other industries in Latin America in which new technology companies are identifying these big opportunities and solving big problems. What are these industries? Is it education, security, healthcare, you name it? Yeah, um, I will say healthcare, education, and fraud management are three areas where we've been very active. On healthcare, over 30% of people in Latin America do not have access to healthcare because of economic reasons. If you look in Mexico, for instance, the public sector is saturated and the private sector is very fragmented and focused on the top end of the economic pyramid, which leaves the middle income segment deeply underserved. We invested this year in a great company called Hospitales Mac, which was founded by Miguel Curi. They quickly developed into the second largest hospital network in Mexico with 21 hospitals with a model based on value-based care, where they are offering similar levels of care at the top end, but at prices that are affordable. And they are using technology in order to improve the access and the cost of their services. Education has a similar trend. The economy in Mexico and in Latin America is changing very fast, given the digitalization and the onshoring trends, and we need to reskill and upskill the population really quickly. The typical university model of people going for four years to college is very tough in emerging markets such as Mexico, where people need to start working from a very young age. 
We invested a lot in educational companies that are leveraging technology in order to provide access to a wider set of population. This includes companies such as Arco in Brazil that through technology are packaging up the best content for K-12 and making it available to, to the entire population. Or companies such as Hotmart in Brazil and Creana in Mexico that through technology are empowering providers in order to offer short-term courses to their labor force. And the last one is what we call automation of trust. Unfortunately, Mexico and Brazil are two of the most fraudulent countries in the world. When we were discussing some of the reasons of why fintech has taken a while to take off in Mexico, I think fraud is a big issue. The good news now is that through technology and through big data, there are companies such as Unico in Brazil and Incode in Mexico that are allowing companies to onboard consumers on a digital basis with a good consumer experience while managing fraud in a very efficient manner. I mean, there are certainly enormous opportunities. Martin, I cannot let you go without asking you about AI. I mean, hundreds of technology companies are incorporating it and using AI for basically everything. What is your take on this? How do you see it impacting the entrepreneurs and the companies that are developing? I think AI is one of those transformative technologies that come every 10 to 20 years and they have a lasting impact. We're in the asymptotic part of the hype curve. So our expectations and fear of Terminator <laughs> 7 coming out of the AI revolution are at speak and so are the valuations of AI companies. The reality is going to be a little more muted but transformational nonetheless. We're already seeing, you know, two thirds of our companies have AI projects ongoing. It's having an impact on content generation, the ability for you to produce high quality content for customer interactions, for training is greatly enhanced. Your ability to automate more mechanical interactions internally and externally are also being transformed. And the most interesting Part of AI, I think, is not creating new science fiction movies in five minutes, but it's improved decision-making. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode, but I just want to close with something that you guys mentioned. I mean, success brings success, and you're certainly an example of that, and you're helping a lot of fathers in the region achieve success. So it is a pleasure, really, to have you on the show. Please come back. Let's do it again. And thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, Mariana. Thank you, Mariana. A pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 